0: It's a great opportunity to meet uh, with many of you from South East Queensland here once again. What's really impressive is the age, experience, rank spread of those in the room which again is a pretty broad demographic of those that serve in the field army which is the one the taxpayer actually values and that part of the army that generates military hard power. But also a welcome to those who are watching this event via live stream and again, in the context of having lived through the second biggest pandemic in the last 110 years, the scale and speed of adaption to allow our people who are unable to be here today to access this kind of learning is a real credit to the cove in the first instance, but also the learner being all of you in the second in that you've been able to be progressive, be adaptive, and accept some of these non-traditional indirect forms of education. So my thanks to you, uh, in that regard. Uh, General Ryan's brief this morning really did set the context and nothing that you're about to experience now which will disagree with any of that. Uh, what I'll seek to do is provide a bit more of an army focus by way of modernisation and some of the challenges that we will face in developing our conceptual cells as we form part of an ADF, which unfortunately will be used in the context of its delivery of lethal effects Uh, over the next generation, Uh, and that's my assessment. You know, in 1945, the army, the the standing army, was about 430,000 in the context of a global war. By 1949, the army was less than 5,000. So in four years, it (coughs) demobilised. The emergency on the Korean Peninsula obviously came about in 1950, and the army at no notice, was unable to generate the kind of forces that would form part of that UN peacekeeping effort from Australia just four years after the end of the Second World War. It relied on those troops that were part of the British Commonwealth Occupational Force in Japan to generate what would become our ground force presence in Korea. Through the 50s and 60s in the context of the Cold War we grappled with the notion of what the Americans called the pentomic age and the impact that would have on land forces. And the US really focused on the pentomic division, which was how a land force would survive combat and battle in the advent of a tactical nuclear exchange or a broader global nuclear war. Uh, Our version of that was the pentropic period. And again, we tried to reimagine what was the unit of action for the army. And those experiments in the 50s and 60s in the context of Indonesian confrontation of the Malayan emergency and then as we scaled into 1965 into the Vietnam period were largely seen as a failure. Um, To be fair and in the context of General Ryan's point uh, that's a bit harsh because the learning whilst it didn't match the objectives of those pentropic experiments nonetheless set the conditions around that Australian way of war fighting as it was described from 65 through to 71, 72, in terms of our counterinsurgency efforts in Vietnam. Very successful counterinsurgency effort um, from 1950 to 1960 as part of the Malayan Emergency Response. But then post-Vietnam, as the Americans, quite bruised from that experience, used reform to drive a reformation in army, and that developed what was known as the Air Land Battle Doctrine. General Don Starry was and SLA Marshall were really the sort of initiators of that activity. That set the conditions for the recapitalisation of the US Army around its close combatant requirements to defeat a like Soviet force in the context of the Cold War and that really saw the advent of the main battle tank, the infantry fighting vehicle, uh, long range fires being HIMARS and attack aviation as the four components of what that ground force would focus on to deliver divisional size effects, to win in the context of a force on force uh, uh, conflict uh, like that we imagine potentially in Berlin or somewhere else in the global theater in the context of the Cold War. 91 comes along the Soviet Union collapses. Uh, Francis Fukuyama calls this point the end of history. Conflict is something that is no longer relevant to the human condition because we can policy and talk and cooperate our way out of it. Of course, that ignores the nature of humans, okay? And we then moved through that period uh, of the 90s, trying to reimagine ourselves as, as an army, um, which was subject to various reforms from the army presence through the Defence White Paper in 1987, which really focused on the Defence of Australia Doctrine, which saw army you know, chasing thugs in thongs on the mainland because the Navy and the Air Force would take care of the rest. Uh, and then the affordability challenges, which was the army that I joined in the early 90s, where we were flat out broke and we struggled for a role. And we had excellent soldiers, NCOs, and officers uh, whose combat experience was sacrosanct in the context of how we trained. But the question was was it relevant to how we were going to fight? And again, that's not a criticism of anyone. They were stalwart professionals they carried the army in that interwar period if you like that set the groundwork for what we would then rely on starting from the east timor intervention of 99 and then through the conflicts of millennial age concluding with our presence in afghanistan this past week the reason i bring all this up from the period of the end of the second world war through to largely the period that we're now all in is to say that change is a constant it's been a constant part of the army Change, reformation, um, the ability to be able to apply lethal effects in different contexts has been part of our job description, you know, since the age of you know Athens and Sparta. But the difference now is the speed of change, and it is different. And you can measure the difference. And the pace of that change manifests itself in the form of globalization and the rise of social media. It also manifests itself in the urgency of now by way of what our updated government policy and direction have told us is a need to effectively recapitalise, change our concepts to adapt to emerging technology and give ourselves the kind of offset advantages that we know we're going to need if as a middle power we think requires success in the future and in that context in 2018 the Chief updated his guidance building on those adaptive army initiatives that uh, Commandant ADC talked about to deliver this uh, organising theory known as accelerated warfare.
1: We live in an era of increasing competition where the rules-based international order is coming under pressure. We need to meet the challenges of future conflict. We need to prepare for accelerated warfare. Accelerated warfare has presented us with a new operating environment, an operating environment that is crowded, complex, interconnected, technologically advanced, lethal and uncertain. Our response to these challenges must see us become future ready, and this starts with how we prepare for war. Our region is becoming increasingly defined by a changing geopolitical order and operating spectrum. At the same time, the pace of urbanization and regional competition in littoral environments is bringing its own form of complexity. These trends are a major factor in accelerating the speed and dynamism across diplomatic, informational, economic and military interactions. The threats in our operating landscape are changing, adversaries including violent extremist organizations and state-based threats can now control and influence across all operating domains of conflict. The advent of rapidly evolving, easily accessible technology offers advantages to both established powers, non-state actors and individuals. Low-cost swarming technologies and the ability to sense and strike from long range are increasing the vulnerability of major military systems future strike capabilities will not just be physical but digital they will be executed at the speed of a mouse click sophisticated anti-access area denial capabilities will deny opposing militaries the ability to maneuver military networking will be critical in terms of generating a system capable of cooperative engagement this will make distributed systems that are smarter and smaller essential to survivability While the nature of war as a contest of wills is enduring, disruption is rapidly changing war's character. These characteristics include the convergence of big data, artificial intelligence, machine learning, robotics, and unmanned autonomous systems with precision weaponry. Fused and synthesized information for decision superiority will be an essential battlefield enabler. The test will be to protect this information from disruption and deception. Technology is not the sole answer. Our challenge is to underpin technological change with a joint warfighting philosophy. This philosophy must be linked to future investment, force structure, and logistics transformation to be relevant in a modern operating environment. The reach of sensors and fires means army must address all domains and comprehensively integrate across them. Space and cyber have not been fully contested in previous wars and therefore we have limited knowledge for how conflict in these domains will play out in the future. This means our ability to operate in the traditional air, sea and land domains are at risk of being debilitated from space and cyber. Yet there is also great opportunity in these domains for military advantage. Future conflict is likely to be across domains where networks and integration are the key to generating military power. Our people must be leaders and integrators who contribute to multidisciplinary teams, enabling us to thrive in uncertainty, adapt to change, and generate solutions. We must leverage emerging technology as a potential source of advantage, integrating new technologies within the joint force. We must be physically and cognitively hard to meet the future of war. Future warfare will be fought at the speed of machines, with success belonging to the side who can adapt the fastest, own the time and best prepare the environment. To meet the challenge of accelerated warfare, we must pull the future towards us rather than
0: wait for it. So the government released white paper in 2019, the had changed in just three years sufficiently to require an update. And we saw those updates delivered through those documents late last year. This is in the midst of a global health crisis and an economic catastrophe. It effectively signalled its commitment to the recapitalisation of the ADF, uh, with a very serious, sober assessment of the international environment and the increasing instability uh, in that system, the liberal international order, which we've relied on since the Bretton Woods Agreement of the post-war period to build the economic, social, security, diplomatic, informational, and military foundations of our society and the global system in which we live. The interesting thing with these documents is the strategic update uh, repudiates the ten-year notion of strategic warning time as it applies to Australia from the white paper 1987 doctrine, which relied on ten years, big red arrows coming down the map. We've got plenty of time to get ready. When you apply space and cyber, that is not relevant anymore. Okay. The paradox in this document, and these are observations, not criticisms. If you accept the notion that ten years is not accurate and not relevant, you've got to contrast that with a 10-year investment plan. Okay? The challenge for all of us is how you manage that risk in the context of how you fight tonight as we reacquire and re-equip the systems, the technologies and the capabilities that we know we need as an offset going into the future. And that's that third document there, which is that transformation strategy doesn't mean much in Gallipoli Barracks, and I understand and am sympathetic to that. The notion of what you do is to generate military hard power. That document there is the buttress by which we will provide services and delivery of those capabilities in the context of time as it is running out relative to threat as it is increasing. If you accept the 1991 proclamation that the revolution in military affairs culminated with the first Gulf War, and manifested itself in GPS, precision munitions, and the advent of precision strike, then uh, you will be blown away by the true revolution, which we're on the cusp of right now, which is information and data. And I know that's a zeitgeist across everything we do at the moment, and I understand that. But the compounding impacts of what's about to happen to us, whether it be the military or society more broadly, is now just being felt and is barely understood. There are opportunities and risks in that context. Muhammad Ali, greatest boxer, probably one of the greatest individuals of the 20th century for social change uh, in the time of the civil rights movement, the moratorium around Vietnam, so on and so forth. He could move from a standing position to a, a jab punch 16 100th second. 16 one of a second. The physical act was four one-hundredths of a second. Okay? So if you, it took 12 of the 16 one of a second for his brain to process the decision to hit and just four to actually apply the hit. Which means if you didn't see the signal, if you couldn't see the pattern recognition, if you couldn't understand the metacognition and look for the giveaway, you're going to get punched in the face. Because that 4-100th, you cannot get out of the way. And so if you apply RLE and the sixteen one hundredth of a second from thinking to signalling to punching, where there is latency, where there is opportunity, is how do you drop that, how do you manipulate that at 12 100th? Both from a defensive context, but also from an offensive one. Because as I said, the 4-100th, once he starts moving, you're going to get punched in the face. And your only opportunity to get out of the way is by the change information pattern detection as part of the first 12 100th. And that's synonymous to the challenge we face today as it applies particularly to emerging technology and its impact on engagement, on force protection, and on survivability. These documents are worth a read as professionals. Again, it sets the context. The FSP in particular is how we will resource this recapitalization. The operational concept document I'm gonna spend a lot of time talking about today because this is the how we fight. Okay, you notice at the start of my brief, I talked about the field army. There's two personalities that we uh, have to manage inside the Department of Defense. One is the business of defense, and that is winning investment. How do you win the fight to give our soldiers the capabilities they need for all the right reasons, okay? Uh, It's not um, pejorative, but it is a competition. That's just the nature of bureaucracy, okay? And then you've got the other personality, which is the profession of arms. And that relies on all of you to be able to employ the capabilities you have the stewardship and responsibility for in the way that they are intended to maximum effect. You've got to do both at the same time, and these documents seek to do that. The concept piece is the profession of arms. It's how you deploy, set theatres, echelon, and fight the army as part of the ADF. And that's obviously in the context of Army in Motion, which the Chief uses uh, to really give everyone some ownership about how we respond to be ready now, but also make room to be future ready. That's the recapitalisation. It's a hard slide. I'm just gonna quickly touch on this. And I really want you to focus on the orders of magnitude. So it's 55 billion in major capital systems out to the end of this decade. It will change every capability we have. We're moving from uh, an M113 based mechanised infantry force. The M113 was introduced into service about the same time that the RAF were flying meteors. It was introduced as a concept after the last time Australian forces were attacked from the air, which was the 27th of April, 1953, okay? It's the last time we are attacked from the air. Those days are coming back, okay? That air threat, that pervasive air threat, is now no longer something that other armies or theater enablers worried about, that's something that we have a responsibility for. Um, but that APC into an IFV, the networking of that system, the air defence radar that will be on every turret, the automatic protection system that will have to be uh, fired in a, in a force protection context quicker than you can react, and again, how do you reduce the 12 one-hundredth of a second to zero if you can get away with it? And the answer is through process automation and technology with a human uh, ability to control and manipulate, as well as to signal that Army needs to build a kind of strategic weight because government's told it to get after this notion of deterrence, and we'll do that through the introduction into service of long-range fires of organic force protection, and again, the ability to stop thinking about the deep battle spaces, the 100 kilometre mark, and start thinking about it in the low 1000s, 2000s, in the same way that maritime air would do. So this recapitalisation is happening, whether it be an Apache decision over Christmas, whether it be the introduction of Land 400 phase two here at second 14th, or whether it be the digitisation of the force, it is coming, and it's coming in the next eight years. That, which I just talked about, is the Raise, Train and Sustain Army. Okay, it's the force generation of the land force. As you know, uh, and I'm being a little bit simplistic, but it's to make the point, uh, when it comes to medium to high intensity conflict, 1st Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment will never deploy in its barracks structure on operations in any context. It just won't happen. It'll be task-organised, mission-purposed, as a ground component of a JTF, that'll be mission-specific and mission-fit, okay? That operational construct, that thing that we task-organise, we do outs and debts and we do force assignment and everything else, that doesn't exist on the Army that because it comes out of different parts of the Army. That's how we steward operationally and force-generate <laughs> forces. What we need to be able to do is to conceptualise ourselves in a future conflict construct with the kind of force structures that give us that land capability, that hard power that the joint force will rely on, particularly in the culminating phase of a military operation. By that, I mean if you apply how we RTS the army, which is that bottom left there, and that's the army that you and I exist in right now, if we apply the context, which is the world and Articulated there through its sea lines of communication, or our parts of the world, to be more specific. Okay, and then you apply uh, an operational concept, which is mooted on the right-hand side there of how we describe uh, the different inputs. That's the force that I'm going to talk about today. So it won't be six RAR, it won't be seven CSB, it won't be uh, one CSR. It'll be those JTFS that we have to build. That'll be context-dependent, mission-purposed. That will mean future conflict. So I talked about tech impact, I talked about the uh, revolution in military affairs, which I think is now, and also about the opportunities to reduce the 12 to zero, okay? Technology for middle powers is part of the offset, War is fundamentally a human endeavour. People are the most important part of our system, and every time we ignore that, we pay for it through the ability to retain skills, knowledge, and attributes through our workforce or we lose that contract between soldiers and officers uh, and the notion of service itself. So people remain absolutely at the core of it. And for a country of 23, 24 million people, we don't have legions of young men and women uh, that can commit to the kind of actions that we saw in Frommel in 1916. Indeed, if we were to ever do that again, it would be a failure in all proportion. And so technology is part of the answer and in terms of our recapitalisation, there is certainly an acceptance that we will become increasingly reliant on these offset systems. So this is how you generate a strength to cover a weakness. So a small population base, a relatively small standing professional force could be seen as a weakness. And how you might offset that is you might use autonomous teaming or you might use digital twins or you might use Um, uh, coalition, friends and allies to be able to offset that size and those offset asymmetries is what I'm talking about. But these technology impacts are probably already here and increasingly they're having an impact on how we think about how we're going to fight in the future. First is the rise of growth. Now it's obviously um, again part of uh, the broader conversation around sub-threshold conflict So this is about adversaries to include non-state and state actors that want to be able to apply military hard power without escalating into conflict, okay? It's this notion of not declaring war but using national power in a military context to be able to force will in the international system. Think about what Russia did in the Ukraine in 2014 through the use of proxy forces, electronic warfare and long-range fires, okay? essentially engage in a ground attritional conflict without introducing declared forces into uh, Ukraine itself and over the border. So they had plausible deniability for as long as possible, even though it was fairly obvious what was going on. Think about the use of um, cyber and information and space, be it ransomware on a sort of geopolitical scale, to be able to, again, impose will without risk of escalation into military conflict. And that's the notion of this thing called grey zone. Definitions vary, vectors are many, but I like to think about it uh, as the securitisation of national power for the purposes of hard power. And again, if you read Joseph Nye, you'll understand the distinction, but it's pretty well the weaponisation of that which you must to enforce will without risk of escalation into conflict, okay? So it's everything from weaponising your health system. It's things like being able to use uh, um, you know, health programs, potentially vaccination programs, to achieve a coercion effect in the system, when once upon a time you might use military forces to do something similar, okay? It's also all about accepting the world as it is, as opposed to the world as we would want it to be. Warfare is a declaration or of, a, of a relationship between two nation states in the traditional context. Uh, wars are hardly declared anymore. It's a bit like the weather. Clear day, bit of cloud, fog, mist, rain, hail. You're not quite sure when it started raining, but you know it's not a blue sky anymore. That tends to sort of describe how conflict sort of evolves, be it state on state, or through proxies or what have you. But certainly, recognising that the spectrum of conflict no longer fits to a peace conflict, war heuristic. Understanding that grey zone tactics and the non-traditional use of military and non-military power for hard power purposes predates conventional warfare itself. Think about the definition of conventional warfare. It's warfare by convention. Okay, not law but by convention. It's a Napoleonic grand battle is a Maoist strategic victory in the context of people's popular warfare. Strategic defensive, mobile warfare, strategic offensive, strategic victory, the polyonic, you line up, you duke it out, and then you seek terms. Or you know, to quote a certain Confederate general, it's the firstest with the mostest. That's warfare by convention, okay? This other thing where we use guerrillas and proxies and other agencies of state to achieve a hard power outcome without necessarily introducing conventional forces or declaring uh, hostilities. It predates modern warfare itself. It never went away. We kind of just forgot about it and now it's back because it suits the international system, particularly if you want to say one thing and do another. And recognize that is really important. The so what for us, is going back to our strategic documents what is the meaning of shape as a strategic objective in accepting that this grey zone threat exists and it is something that needs to be treated or addressed okay so friends and allies matter engagements from an individual level a training institution right up to major collective exercises okay to build consensus to do burden sharing it all matters because it influences the system provide a mechanism for us to be able to develop our own grey zone vectors, but also to get in the minds of those people who oppose us and perhaps influence their thinking by demonstrating that the costs outweigh the benefits. Okay, we haven't introduced a military response, we haven't escalated, but we force the decision of a pacing threat or someone else by demonstrating a resolve or otherwise, that will preclude their intended course of action. This is and always has been a feature of what we do. We now just need to think about it beyond the operational constructs that see Operation Slipper apply to the Middle East, you know, Operation Astute apply to um, East Timor, Operation Gold apply to the Sydney Olympics. We need to move beyond that and get into the modality of thinking about operationalising everything we do because it has a shaping impact on those that are observing us to detect weakness or seek opportunity. Global communications, so whilst we in Australia struggle with the rollout of 5G and the national broadband network, and that's not a criticism, Australia is not Singapore, it's not a city metropolis state, it's a huge country, distances, somewhat disparate population and a real challenge to connect to the standard of 5G. But know that whilst we are rolling out 5G right now, the US and Japan had a high level meeting a month ago to roll out 6G. So, we might get there and we'll feel good about that, and then we'll reach that point of obsolescence relative to everyone else. So, what of that is, again, the pace and scale, the interconnectedness of the global system is only increasing. And again, I'll come back to that Ali analogy. Okay, it's how do you reduce the 12 ths to give you the advantage to avoid the punch? Okay, global communications represents part of this. Uh, Not only is it just a matter of ones and nuns by way of technology, the other piece to think about is that which is being passed through those systems and the speed to invoke again what the French call rage militaire, which is how you inspire the passion of the people to a particular cause. And again if you look in uh, things like the People in Arms chapter of On War, I think it's book three, that notion of a remarkable trinity uh, focuses on rage or passion. And one of the ways you can do that on a global scale is through increasing access to populations. Think about the outrage of Black Lives Matter. Now again, a very worthy cause and something that people quite righteously felt outraged about, but that went from a law and order incident and an atrocity committed against a civilian in the US to a global movement in days, okay? That has not happened before in the way that these incidents can quickly extrapolate into global issues, and that's the most recent example. So recognising that what is filmed can be transmitted, can be seen by every human being in a matter of hours. uh, Best case uh, is the world now in which we live. When it comes to protecting our narrative, being righteous and right at the same time in the conduct of military operations, Recognising the impact of communications is one of the key components of how we protect the force and its mandate, both training here in operations, uh, for operations I should say, as well as conduct on operations. Think about an environmental, um, that's an environmental issue during a training exercise and the ability for that to become headline on the news uh, and the impact that does to reputation, brand, and our ability to recruit future uh, or volunteer members, okay? Understand that, that applies to every aspect of what we do and we need to safeguard against it. The other opportunity there is in terms of being able to not weaponise, but certainly operationalise global communications uh, and harness the opportunities that 5G and 6G will bring when it comes to our networks and systems. Social media, just sort of furthering on from that comment. So we've all sort of, been a beneficiary and victim of social media, sort of how I describe it. Um, 2014-15, again, moving into Iraq in the context of MH17 has just been shot down. That's a global outrage. I think 370 goes missing, which just is bizarre. How can you lose an aircraft these days, having um, just explained to you the connectedness of the world and now I can't explain how we lost an aircraft with 300 people on board or whatever it was. That's a mystery in and of itself. But um, the impact of social media to inspire first and second generation immigrants leading comfortable lives in Western Europe to go and join a fatalist Sunni movement to then willingly present themselves as targets of US air power was only facilitated through this. Okay? So if you're under 25, and I've said this, I think, to some of you before, about 30% of your lived experience, your sentient being, is looking through the glass of your mobile phone. 30% of everything you do, at least, okay, is looking through the glass of your phone. So the ability to access you know, the prefrontal cortex of uh, those who are so fixated by these, to be inspired in the context of ISIS to go and join that movement, having previously had no reason or affiliation to, speaks to the ability of social media to again cause outrage, also generate the kind of rage-military effect that up until this point uh, was mostly small-scale. So the ability to inspire movements on a global level, again speaks to some of the asymmetries and offsets that have given hyper-empowered individuals and non-state actors the ability to effectively go toe-to-toe with nation states. That is something that is different. That's something that must be understood. There are battalions of individuals now in some countries focused on developing opportunities for, be it fake news or the ability to inspire confusion and outrage and flash mobs and all those other sort of zeitgeisty type ways of describing the impact of social media which have a direct correlation to public order, safety and security, uh, which includes that which we do in the context of providing hard power. It is different. If you don't think about the requirements by force protection, uh, but also for some parts of the force, exploitation and offensive operations using these devices in a way that is consistent with our uh, laws, obligations and mandates, then again we're missing a trick And there's no doubt that again in our policy documents we're serious about this. When you follow the amount of money that's about to be invested in both cyber and information when it comes to weaponising appropriately those two vectors but also understanding the criticality when it comes to protecting ourselves. Another quick vignette is uh, Iraq in 2015. Uh, CTS forces are about to go into a place called Beji, which is the oil refinery in south of Mosul. You need to step up to get ready for the offensive. Um, prior to H hour, the CTS commander gets a live stream uh, threat out the front of his house in Baghdad um, with the uh, terrible conundrum of if he crosses the LD and commands the operation, those that are live streaming this are going to walk into his house and kill his family on the spot. and and broadcast it. That's the best example when it comes to illustrating the ability to get inside the head of somebody and influence their actions through these vectors, okay? And it speaks to accepting the reality that if it can be done to a partner in that instance, it can absolutely be done to us. And thinking about how we protect ourselves in that very serious context, again, just goes to the character of conflict and the convergence of technology by way of our responsibility to protect ourselves and to conduct our missions. That rising global citizen talking about hyper our our individuals again speaks to the changing character of conflict and we know this to be the case. Okay, so whether it be an anarchist, uh, a sat-sating Archduke Franz Ferdinand in the... Uh, Serbia-Austria conflict, which became the contagion to begin the First World War, or whether it be um, Rasputin and his ability to influence uh, Tsar Nicholas II, which again um, ended badly for them through the October Revolution. Certain individuals at certain points in history can have these sort of compounding effects. When combined with social media and when uh, given the ability to inspire on a pan-regional or a global sort of scale, uh, it can have a profound impact on how we both protect ourselves and also use those opportunities to demonstrate resolve, to coerce, to deter, and ultimately to shape, deter, and respond. Okay. Think about what's happening on the NATO-Russian border, border. Um, the use of uh, certain individuals whether politicians or regional personalities to be able to deliver uh, very, very very precise information effects is demonstrated Uh, again in Ukraine and Azerbaijan, for example, where you can walk 300 metres, so 150 metres on one side there's the border, 150 metres on the other, and depending on which side of the border you're on, within that very specific range, you can be told two different things by the same individual. If you're on the NATO side, again, Russians are coming. Get ready. Russians are coming. And if you're on the other side, same individual. that no, is coming. That no, is coming. And it's very, very specific. It can be accurately applied, and again, it's all about influencing decisions, pre-empting actions, and getting that narrative right uh, when it comes to being able to dominate either future intended actions or to dissuade others from doing That's a must and so with that, as the admixture of what's always been the case for the operating environment that is becoming relevant in the context of those technology drivers, part of our response comes back to what government told us to do by way of planning future investment.
1: Just going to touch on some
0: of those capabilities as it relates to uh, the Army and, and that you will see come into the organisation in the next couple of years. First so this is. A technology that again brings strategic weight. So if you think about Defence of Australia in 1987, maritime air or sea air gap is really the domain of those that can fly I metal mean, at long distances through the air. Okay? And air forces would do you know, those that would come lucky enough to get ashore and to meet crocodiles. Okay? That has changed. So the ability now from air forces to cooperate operate in long range hypersonic systems for air warfare destroyers, what submarines, and what now do. So, the ability to sense and target at ranges in the hundreds, if not low thousands of kilometres is now something that, again, is largely done agnostic, which previously the value of the maritime air and to increase increasing degree, cyber. So we need to change our whole context about how we think about battlefield geometry. And that by way of what we can sense, and therefore we can share This is so that's <coughs> no, <and> That's Russia. <laughs> <laughs> and so for hypersonics um and the advent of bio technology, uh, this is uh, weapons systems and technologies moving at speed that will overwhelm our defence systems, uh, but also, again, bring that strategic weight to army that makes it a genuine contributor when it comes to the kind of deterrence, dare I say it, defensive A2AD system that we might see arrayed across our north in the context of shape and deterrence, and that relies obviously on cooperation with friends and allies um, that previously we, we just couldn't do. Okay? So these systems are coming into defence, they're coming into army and being able to reimagine ourselves at distance is critical to how we're going to reconceptualize ourselves. Quantum technology, again, a novel thing some years ago, uh, but increasingly um, we are reliant on this sort of science, albeit it's an emergent science, the degree of which we don't fully understand. So the integrated circuit, which is intrinsic to every laptop computer, every phone, everything that has a processing function, Uh, and the average Australian has seven devices that they rely on, the integrated circuit relies on using temperature to manipulate an electron to behave in a predictive way to then be able to pass electricity through a pathway to make a circuit, okay? That's essentially a basic description of the application of quantum technologies. Integrated circuit's the most obvious example, but the science itself is being able to uh, understand to the degree of accuracy which you must, how you might manipulate those electrons to do certain behaviours, or what sort of chemical or temperature requirement there might be to change those behaviours. And it's done to such a degree, and it's so precise, that essentially it allows us to manipulate natural forces in a way that uh, informs behaviour. Okay, this is about the manipulation of natural forces at the subatomic level. Einstein called it spooky science, okay, because he he sort of dabbled in the dark arts in the 30s and 40s, but only now are we becoming aware of the potential to manipulate natural forces at the subatomic level. What does that mean? It means you can apply a quantum system to an unmanned aerial system that can fly over a complex urban space and can do change detection from thousands of feet into the underground subway sewer system because the equipment on board is so sensitive and so precise it can measure ground vibration relative to a certain area which may be under a building or inside a sewer or subway. So rather than sending some poor bugger in there with a torch and hope, you potentially don't need to do that, okay? So that technology as it applies to high performance computing, Um, sensing, encryption, the potential for it is profound. And nation states, by way of their investment, are now throwing a lot of resource at this. Pleasingly, Australia is one of the world leaders in quantum science. What we lack is the ability to scale through research development and venture capital. But there are opportunities here which will again change the character of conflict Um, the race is to be an early adopter and not a first follower. In terms of what we're doing right now uh, in Army, on the left-hand side there you can see the vectors by way of sensing imagery, comms, cryptography, computing simulation, enablers and countermeasures. Uh, And again, we're partnering with industry. We've got Michelle Simmons, former Australian of the Year, uh, working in collaboration with DST to really again apply some of these offset systems as early as we can. Robotics autonomous systems, again, I, just, I, I temper my enthusiasm by reminding myself that the automotive industry have been using robotics in manufacturing for 30 years, uh, uh, but in the same context, uh, recognize that the 2018 strategy, which was written uh, by some of my staff, and you'll hear from one of them shortly, really has become the catalyst for us to get serious about bringing these systems into service and being, again, able to apply an offset, and by that I mean, how do you increase mass? How do you protect the force? And how do you um, generate tempo using non human systems? And this technology uh, is being realised through various endeavours the optionally crewed combat vehicles you're all tracking, the use of um, the uh, robotic quadrupeds again to de risk things like high research uh, and uh, power and energy by way of um, electric, electrification of some of our heavy vehicles is underway. Again, I won't steal any of the thunder of the team because I'll talk to you about this in great detail. So with all of that, what are we going to do about it? And again, I'm not going to relitigate the recapitalisation because you're all across it. I'm going to talk about in terms of concepts. How are we going to fight it? The chief's priorities remain extant, so it's, again, a really um, clever way of bringing relevance to the force. So whether you are in a section, or a troop, or a company, or a battle group, you can talk about those four verbs as requirements. It's the new version of shoot, move and communicate. When we conceptualise it, uh, how we echelon it, how we're gonna fight it, is in this document here. It's secret classified, but it's available to those able to access DSM with the right clearances. And I'm really keen for all of you to, again, demonstrate your own form and function by way of realising the field army as part of those joint task forces going ahead. Some of the constructs, so again we have our normal army order of battle which you're all well familiar with across brigades, divisions and everything else. But the outputs might look like that which is on the left. What's our domestic HADR joint task force look like? What does our persistent engagement always on intelligence collect task force in the context of Northern Australia look like? How do we do an entry operation? What is a defensive A2AD across Christmas, Cocos Islands, Sunda Straits, Manus Island, and East New Britain, Solomon Islands look like? How do we array the force to be able to provide that kind of layered effect going forward? How do we talk to our partners in the region to do this collaborative? Because we will not be doing this by ourselves. Complex HADR, which is to say a cyclone or an earthquake has gone through and there's a security threat. So that's HADR with teeth from a force protection perspective. Regional lead. if we had to do East Timor tomorrow, how would we do it? And coalition joint land combat, that which we are force design to, because again, noting the nature of humans, warfare will come tragically, and when it does, we must be ready for it. So the outcomes of that concept, again, need to inform how we're gonna transform the force. So for those in 2nd 14th, you know that the CRV is not the ASLAV, okay? It is a uh, 29 to 39,000 uh, kilo vehicle. It has tremendous networking capability. Its force protection is world-class, and it will change the way that we conduct armor cavalry operations for the better. That needs to be conceptualized. It needs to be captured in the form of a unified concept, and it needs to uh, come back up to Army so that we can continue to evolve the force. And so, ladies and gents, just to wrap up, uh, we are transforming the force. Uh, the Army is a human-based organisation that will never be forgotten. The offset asymmetry that we see manifests itself in fusing uh, new capability with emergent technology and then applying a concept around it that gives us the asymmetries that we know we will need if we are to be successful in the future. What it relies on is a joint mindset a domain expertise and the ability to be agile, recognising that the next disruption uh, is coming. And just again to make the point, in the RLE context, as I said, in 4100th you won't get out of the way. The challenge is how do you do the change detection? How do you see it early? And how do you take that 12100 both from a protection point of view, to be able to anticipate the punch, but also how do you use that to run your own latency to zero so that you can punch back. And with that, thanks very much for your time.